it is back to business as usual for federal employees for a month and a half anyhow. Congress may have avoided a government shutdown over the weekend, but the House and Senate are still far apart on a comprehensive spending deal for the rest of the fiscal year. And that's got some feds worried about a lapse in funding just in time for Thanksgiving. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. Hundreds of thousands of federal employees prepared for a government shutdown that was all but certain until it wasn't. Just hours before the deadline at midnight Saturday, Congress avoided a government shutdown by passing a continuing resolution. That stopgap funding bill gives lawmakers until November 17th to work out a bipartisan spending deal for the rest of fiscal 2024. But federal employees aren't celebrating or letting their guard down just yet. LaRonda Gamble is the president of the American Federation of Government Employees, Local 12, and an employee at the Labor Department. At a barbecue held by the union on Saturday, before lawmakers moved ahead with the stopgap spending bill, Gamble said bargaining unit members have been saving up in preparation for a government shutdown. A lot of our members are actually living paycheck to paycheck because some people automatically think if you're a government employee that you make this big astronomical amount of money when in fact we're being paid less than what some people are being paid on the outside. Tyra McClelland is AFGE District 14's National Women's Advisory Coordinator and an employee with the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. She says the October 1st shutdown deadline came at a really challenging time for feds. Federal student loan borrowers started making payments on Saturday after the Education Department ended a three-year pandemic-era pause on repayments. Federal employees also had to figure out rent or mortgage payments at the start of a new month. McClelland says she and her co-workers, who would keep working without pay during a shutdown, tightened household spending as much as possible, not knowing whether they'd receive their next paycheck on time. You have to do what I call furlough math. Furlough math is you normally let your daughter take a shower. You don't care how long she's in there. Now with furlough math, you care. When it comes to furlough math, you have to figure out, hmm, would I normally have a large load of laundry? Oh, we're going to have a super large load of laundry. It's just the little things. And I don't think people understand that you have to do mathematical equations on absolutely positively every aspect of your life. The new deadline raises the stakes since lawmakers run the risk of a government shutdown just before Thanksgiving. That would take a toll on feds during the holiday season, which is also a peak season for travel. As a reminder, airport security personnel at the Transportation Security Administration keep working during a shutdown, but without pay. During some of the longer government shutdowns, the TSA faced staffing issues as more TSA officers called out of work with the shutdown dragging on. McClelland says the uncertainty weighs on federal employees who are still figuring out their new normal after the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted their lives. It's disappointing to hear people saying, oh, they've been through this before. They should already know how to do this. It's different each time. Many federal employees will receive their next paycheck on October 14th. Those employees would have seen a partial paycheck if a government shutdown occurred and lasted for two weeks or longer. But McClelland says the not knowing is particularly hard on federal employees. The anxiety level, and it's an unnecessary emotion that our government leaders put us in. We, we voted you into the office and then you turn around and you do this to us. Patrick Holmes is also an employee at the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, and he's chief shop steward for AFGE Local 727. He says he's saving as much as he can. 
I have to provide for my kids, provide for family members. So not knowing when you will get the next paycheck is stressful. And then you don't want to have stress already working in law enforcement. It could be already stressful. And then adding more stress on top of not knowing when you're going to get paid. It's just going to be a stressful situation. How can you go in and perform your duties and be productive out in the workforce when you're in the back of your mind? You don't know when your next paycheck is coming. Holmes says a government shutdown can have a ripple effect on federal employees in law enforcement and national security jobs. Excessive debts can prevent some candidates from obtaining a security clearance or passing a federal background check. And within the federal government, you have to keep up a a standard. You can't have certain debt working with the federal government. So Congress should understand that when we become behind, our jobs are potentially at risk because we are delinquent on our bills, and you can't do that. You can't be delinquent on your bills being a federal government employee. Agencies also scrambled late last week to determine what funds, if any, were available to keep employees paid for at least the first week of a shutdown. The Department of Housing and Urban Development told employees in an email that the agency would stay open a week into a government shutdown. HUD told employees that they would work as normal with pay and scheduled travel and leave. Sal Viola is president of AFGE Council 222, which represents 5,000 HUD employees. He says HUD usually furloughs most of its workforce and that the plan to stay open came as a surprise to him. I think the employees are very confused. This is the first time that, you know, HUD is actually having a different shutdown than the rest of the government. HUD's carryover funds during a shutdown might have softened the financial impact to federal employees, but Viola says the funding could have gone to better use on staffing. He says the agency hasn't been hiring to keep up with its rate of attrition over the past two years. There's more retirements now than ever. Employees cannot just keep up. But not all agencies can afford to keep the lights on. Gamble says her agency, the Labor Department, would furlough a majority of its workforce in the event of a shutdown. It will be a very skeletal crew. It will be individuals that have to go in to do the basics to make sure the government can still function somewhat with the activities that will still be going on that are considered accepted um, activities. So those individuals will have to go in to handle those things. Gamble says the annual uncertainty of a government shutdown makes it hard to hold down an otherwise good government job. And other feds feel the same way, too. The Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency received the worst grade among mid-sized agencies. That's according to the best places to work in the federal government ranking from the Partnership for Public Service. Holmes says the routine threat of a government shutdown makes it hard for the federal government to recruit the next generation of employees to join the agency. It's hard to recruit. Knowing that we have an aluminum shutdown, it's going to be hard to recruit that age group of 40 and under because they're going to be like, why should I waste my time and career working for a, a government that don't appreciate me and not knowing when my next check is going to come? So it's going to be hard to recruit those members. It's going to be hard to retain those members. The House and Senate are no closer to a comprehensive spending deal for the rest of the fiscal year. The House and Senate are no closer to a spending deal. The Senate has a full slate of spending bills ready for a full vote. They keep most non-defense discretionary spending frozen at current levels. 
But the House is still working on its own version of those bills that push for spending cuts. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre told reporters that the clock is ticking. They don't have to wait 45 days to get this done. They really don't. There's no excuse for another crisis. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance, And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.